Our sermon text this morning is Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 79. Hear the word of the Lord. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. If you haven't already, I want to encourage you to take out your Bible and turn with me to Luke chapter 1. We're in our third week of our Advent series. We will finish this series up next week. Well, I guess technically at our Christmas Eve service. So a couple weeks left. We spent two weeks in the first two chapters of Matthew, and now we are moving to Luke's gospel. We're going to spend a few weeks here as we consider the coming of Jesus once again. Throughout this series, what we have tried to do is to emphasize a different classic Advent or Christmas hymn. And this morning, we're emphasizing the song we just sang, Come Thou Long expected Jesus. This was a hymn that was written by Charles Wesley in the 1700s and 1744. And and Charles Wesley, who was a pastor, he wrote this hymn in part to offer a prayer. He was teaching his people how to pray as they prepared their hearts for Christmas, but especially as they consider the darkness of the world around them and the darkness of the world within them. How does one pray when it feels like we are living in a night that will never end. And so Charles Wesley writes this great hymn, and as it opens this prayer, this prayer that we so often do not pray, it's almost as if, not just in 2020, but any year, the struggles that we face, we're so good at defining the problem. We talk about the problem so much. Here's, here's what's going on. We wake up each morning and we complain and we grumble and, and we, we just state it very clearly. This is what's wrong with my life right now. And then we stop. And, and we're so close. We're so close to what the Lord wants of us and what the Lord expects of us. If we could just go where Charles Wesley directs us to go in this song, the world around you is dark you, you, you feel like you're in this endless night and there's no hope for the rising of the sun. Okay, great. Now, that's terrible. Okay, but take it the next step. So we pray. Come, thou long-expected Jesus. Come, 
Come, Lord Jesus, and long for his coming and pray for his coming and look forward to the day when he will come back to set all things right. And so as as Charles Wesley pins this hymn, he helps his people see that even in the first few verses, born to set thy people free from our fears and sins, release us. Let us find our rest in thee. You see, Advent and Christmas make little to no sense if we do not feel our need for Jesus. Jesus-centered longing and Jesus-centered waiting are empty and powerless if we do not understand and feel that we need Jesus. I mean, think about how ordinary the most significant event in the history of the world, according to Christians, is. Think about how ordinary it is. A baby was born. And we go through all of this. We, we celebrate. We, we, we implore people to, to come and, and behold this baby who was born. Why all the extraordinary celebration for such an ordinary event? A baby was born. Well, it's because we believe that through this ordinary event, God himself came down to us. And he alone can give us hope and make us whole and set us free. But that makes no sense unless we feel like we need those things. There's so much to lament about this year, but I believe there's also reason for gratitude. I really believe that we are each feeling our need for what Jesus has done, for what Jesus is doing, and for what Jesus will do for us and for the world because we've gone through this year. I think those of us who have lived in comfort for so long and our lives have been so interrupted this year, it has forced us to feel our need for a Savior who not only saves us spiritually, but who is actually going to return one day to set this place right. And so I'm grateful if this year has caused us to feel our need. I do believe that the door has been opened for each one of us to long, not just for the idea of a Savior or the concept of Jesus, but for the person of Jesus, the flesh and blood real Jesus, who we celebrate, was born, who came to us. I think we have grown numb to the person of Jesus, especially living in the Bible Belt. We're at a disadvantage Jesus becomes just another part of our culture, similar to football. It's Jesus and football. And sweet tea, I guess. I don't know. We do sweet tea in Kentucky, too. Jesus, football. But here's the problem. If Jesus remains just a concept or a spiritual idea, our suffering in this world is very real and very immediate and very painful. Our real suffering in this real fallen world helps us long and desire and yearn, not for an idea, but for a person who can really provide for the longings of our heart. A counterfeit Jesus won't do it. A weekend-only Jesus won't do it. And so, as I hope we've all realized this year, I hope you also see that there is nothing in this world, not money, not status, not power, not politics, nothing 
that can provide for the aching desires of your heart. And Advent tells us why. We were made for another world. We were made for another world. And God is teaching us this year to feel what we already know. He is teaching us that we are sojourners and we are strangers. We are living in a world that is not our home. And we know that this world is not our home because of three desires that exist within each one of us. We desire hope. We desire hope. Every single one of us. We desire hope. Why? Because we live and we walk in a place of darkness. And a second desire, we desire salvation. Why do, why do we each desire salvation? Because we each cannot escape the reality that we are sinners. And then finally, we each desire freedom. Because deep down, we know that we are held captive by either another person or an idea or a fear of some kind. So we desire freedom. The people of Israel, this is a long setup for Zechariah, get ready. The people of Israel waited thousands of years, thousands of years, for three primary things from God. They were waiting for God to visit them. That's what they were waiting for, to, to, to come and enter this darkness and shine his light. He had to come. There was, there was no, no other way around it. Second, they were waiting for God to redeem them. They needed redemption. They needed restoration. They needed salvation, and they could not find it for themselves. They could not provide it for themselves, so they needed God to come and bring it to them. And finally, they were waiting for God to deliver them from all their enemies. A lot of these desires really formulated during exile. As they were in exile, they meditated on this fact that they were not in the promised land. And so they desired for the Lord to come, for the Lord to redeem, and for the Lord to set them free. For Zechariah, who we see here in Luke chapter 1, the birth of Jesus was reason for great joy and praise precisely because he realized how Jesus provided for all of the longing and all of the desire of Israel for over the past thousands of years. Jesus has come and he has fulfilled all of it. This, this prophecy that we have here, it says in verse 67 that Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied. This, this really is a poem. It's, it's a song. Traditionally, it's been called the Song of Zechariah or the Benedictus, this, this praise song to the Lord. This is great celebration and joy from Zechariah. And he rejoices because he knows that in Jesus, the birth of Jesus, all of Israel's hopes and all of Israel's desires were now fulfilled. All of your hopes, all of your desires cannot be fulfilled by anything in this world, but it can be fulfilled through Jesus. But here's what we learn about Zechariah. Zechariah did not always have this kind of faith. If you'll back up with me, let's start looking back and, and develop a little bit of context here. If you go back to the beginning of, of Luke chapter 1, start, start looking around verse 5. If you start reading through there, and you look in verse 6 especially, we learn that Zechariah was a well-known and well-respected priest. He was a priest. He had, you know, an elevated position. He was an important person in his community. He and his wife Elizabeth are described as righteous before the Lord. They are described as being blameless before God. Um, we learn more about uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth. They are without children. They, they have no children. They're very old, so they're unable to have children now, but they've never been able to have children because Elizabeth is barren. 
And so, you know, one day, Zechariah is just doing his priestly duty. He's serving in the temple, and he receives a visit from an angel. Look with me at verse 11. Verse 11 in Luke chapter 1. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Don't you always love when the angels who just come out of nowhere, I mean, come out of the total blue, are like, hey, why are you so scared? Why am I scared, you know? I was just doing the thing I do every single day, and now you're standing here in front of me. And it's like, don't be afraid. They always say that. I know it's supposed to be comforting, but I'm just always like, don't be afraid. I mean, can you at least understand why I'd be a little bit startled here? Okay, sorry, a little distraction. Okay, so do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Unbelievable. Unbelievable prophecy. Such an encouraging word. Zechariah is a priest who is so familiar with the Old Testament scriptures And yet he is floored here to the point that it literally is unbelievable to him. He can't believe it. He doesn't believe it. Verse 18, And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Zechariah doubts that this is even possible, but his doubt is deep, and it leads to unbelief. He does not believe that the Lord can do this. Or that the Lord will do this. He wonders, not with faith the way Mary does, but he wonders with doubt. And I love verse 19. I love how the angel responds to him. Look at verse 19. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I love that response so much. You know, Zechariah, this, this priest, this man, doubts an angel who was sent by the Lord to come and stand in his presence and give this word. He's like, nah, that's, that's, that's a great word, but I think you're wrong. And the angel just stares at him and says, I'm Gabriel. You know, almost like, who are you, Zechariah, to doubt me? I'm Gabriel from the Lord coming into your presence. But he does, he doubts, he doesn't believe. And so there's a punishment to this, okay? He is judged, The angel of the Lord declares judgment on Zechariah for his unbelief, and so Zechariah remains mute. He's silent for nine months. And I'm sure some some of the ladies in the room are like, you know, there are a lot of times when my husband doesn't believe the Lord too, but he has never been punished with silence for nine months. That would be kind of nice, you know? Um, what, what a nice, you know, judgment from the Lord that would be. Maybe you'll be praying for that a little bit later. I don't know. Um, so Zechariah is silent for nine months. Now, during Elizabeth's pregnancy, there's another woman, another woman who also received a word from an angel. And this was a young girl named Mary. And, and Mary, she visits Elizabeth. 
The child that Mary was carrying, we learn, was, was to be named Jesus. And, and Mary learns from the angel that he's supposed to be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord is going to give to him the throne of his father David. And he's going to reign forever and his kingdom will never end. And so when Mary comes to visit Elizabeth, they share all of these details with her. And Elizabeth leaps for joy that the mother of her Lord has come to visit. And, and I'm sure Zechariah is sitting there somewhere. He can't speak. He can't express anything, but he's just sitting and watching and waiting. He's sitting and pondering and watching and waiting. I'm sure he's opening the Old Testament scriptures to to just pour over them once again. He's reading and he's waiting and he's watching everything that's happening here. Fast forward nine months and Elizabeth gives birth to a son and they name him John. And immediately, immediately after his circumcision or at his circumcision when they name him John, Zechariah regained the ability to speak and this is what he said first words from Zechariah in months blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people there are three longings of Israel and by extension three longings within our own hearts that are fulfilled in the coming of Christ first this longing for hope. God has visited his hopeless people. So Zechariah opens his mouth after nine months of silence, and he declares first, before anything else, blessed be the Lord, or praise the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited his people. This is so significant how it starts, because of the nature of the people that God is visiting. God is visiting those who dwell in darkness. I want you to skip over to verse 78. Look at verse 78. So in in part of this, this song, Zechariah is saying that his son, John the Baptist is going to go and do some things. He's going to give the people of Israel knowledge of salvation. He's going to go before the Lord to prepare his way. And and then it says here in verse 78, it will be, their sins will be forgiven because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light. So the coming of Christ means that there will be light given to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. The coming of Christ meant everything to Zechariah because he understood that this was the dawning of a new day. He understood that he and the people of Israel and everyone around him lived in a land of darkness. And so with the coming of Christ, it meant the Lord himself was visiting as a light to shine in the darkness. And so it led him to rejoice. We often miss this simple reality that we too live in a land of darkness there is darkness within us sin permeates our thoughts and feelings and intentions there's darkness all around us evil permeates our society our fallen world includes disasters and disease and death and abuse and injustice and and here's here's the reality we have to deal with We can't overcome this darkness. We can't escape it. We can never improve our behavior enough to root out all the darkness that's within. 
We could never work for justice and mercy enough to root out all the evil and darkness in the world. And we do live in the shadow of death. This year has taught me that more than any other year in my life so far. We live in the shadow of death. No matter what we do, death is coming for us all. We have totally taken advantage of living in a country like ours, but we've also been blinded to the realities that are actually out there. When we forget that we actually live in a land of darkness, when we forget that we live in the shadow of death, it shocks us when we hear things like there are no ICU beds in the state of Mississippi. It shocks us. And we're like, what? Because when we think about, you know, health care, we're like, we can do whatever we want because if we get sick, you know, they're just going to take care of us. We, just, we get sick, we go to the doctor, they're going to make us better. We live in the shadow of death. I, I really hope this year has, has helped us see that, that you may go to the hospital and there's not a bed. People around the world live in this reality every single day. We are a people who live in a land of darkness and death is creeping around every single corner. It's unexpected. It's darkness. And we can't overcome it. There's nothing we can do to change it. We can't escape it. Here's what happens when you wake up to this reality and you realize that you actually live in darkness. You realize that on your own, apart from God intervening, you actually have no hope. The Israelites felt this. They had the promises made to Abraham, the promises made to David, but their hopes of a promised land were dashed against the rocks of their own disobedience and they were sent into exile. Darkness within had landed them into the depths of a dark world. And they lived under oppression from multiple nations. They failed to be a light to the nation, so the light was taken and they lived in darkness. And the only hope they had was for someone outside of them to come and visit them. The prophet Isaiah communicated this, this Israelite hope so well. He, he said in Isaiah 9, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. In exile, the Israelites stumbled in the dark and there was no way for them to overcome it. Their only hope was bound to a visitation of God himself. Light had to shine from the outside. And we are so prone to numb ourselves with distractions that it's easy to forget that we actually are hopeless without Christ. We're hopeless without a visitation from the Lord. Not just a little worse off, we're hopeless. That's why we long for his return, because we know that things are not going to be set right until he does return. We don't think of ourselves as living in darkness, that is, that is, until the bottom falls out in our lives. We don't, we don't think of life as dark until the bottom falls out. You lose a loved one, someone close to you dies then you start to feel like you live in darkness. You lose a job. You lose a job, and you're not sure how you're going to pay for groceries, or maybe you're going to have to choose, am I going to pay for groceries or pay the mortgage next month? When you're in a situation like that, you feel and you see the darkness. You develop an addiction that you just cannot shake. You see and you feel darkness. You experience some type of significant change or face uncertainty. You fall into sin. You experience an injustice or abuse from the outside and you can't control it. 
that's when you start to see that this is a dark world. And there's no way to overcome it. We would remain in darkness unless God comes to us. Here's the good news, though. Here's the good news of Zechariah's song. God has visited us in the darkness. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord, Zechariah sings, for he has visited his people. The birth of Jesus signals to us that God himself comes to his people. And he visited the way the sun rises in the morning. I love that imagery that Zechariah gives us here. The way the sun rises in the morning. The coming of Jesus means a new day has dawned. There are new possibilities. A day and an age that will be marked by peace, joy, justice, and wholeness has now dawned. And the good news of the gospel, the good news of Advent, is that the birth of Jesus means Israel's waiting was over. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. The advent of Jesus is the arrival of hope, the arrival of light, and the arrival of life itself. Zechariah is confident, even before Jesus is born, that in Jesus, God has visited us. He comes to us, and he doesn't ask us to come to him. And here's here's an important takeaway, and I hope you don't miss this. God visits the hopeless. I want you to notice who God comes to. God comes to his people, Israel, who are dwelling in darkness. He he doesn't come to those who are dwelling in the light. He comes to those who need him. He comes to those who are feeling like, I have no way out. If you feel like you are sitting in the darkness, if you feel like you are experiencing a night that just won't end, you need to remember that that's exactly the place Jesus loves to visit. He wants to be with you. He's not asking you to, to, you know, cheer up. Come on, buck up. Quit, quit being so, you know, down about everything. No, we are free. We are free to sit in the darkness knowing that Jesus will be with us. He comes to shine his light in the dark places. We can face every single dreary and weary day with hope because Jesus was born. And we can be like Zechariah, and we can praise God for visiting us even while we're still waiting in the darkness. This was an Advent prayer. This is an Advent praise from Zechariah. Jesus had not even been born yet. He's still waiting on it, but he's so confident that God has come. Okay, so God has visited his hopeless people. Second, God has redeemed his sinful people. God has redeemed his sinful people. So we see this from this song as well. Um, Not not only did the Lord provide for our desire for hope by by visiting us, but he provides for our desire for salvation by redeeming us. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, Zechariah says, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And I love this imagery. It says, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us. It's the imagery of a strong and powerful salvation that that is secure and it is sure. You see, God did not visit us because we were the cream of the crop. God visited sinners. We're a sinful people. We like conflict. We like gossip. We, we like to grumble and complain at the Lord. Our sin creates a guilt before God that is unavoidable and inescapable in ourselves. But through the coming of Jesus, God has come to redeem his people. 
He has raised up a horn of salvation. And we see, we see three elements to this salvation in this, in this song. The first is that God keeps his promises. If, if you look, it says in verse 69, and God has raised up a horn of salvation for us. In the house of his servant David, we get a lot of Old Testament language here, a lot of fulfillment language. In the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham and to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. Okay, we'll stop right there. So he keeps his promises. Because Jesus was born, the promise that God made to David that there will be a descendant of his that reigns on a throne and in a kingdom that will never end is fulfilled. Jesus is this eternal king that is prophesied and promised to David. Second, through the prophets, time and time again, a Messiah is promised, a Savior who will come and rescue and redeem his people is promised time and time again. And so in Jesus, those promises are kept. And then finally, this, this initial promise that we're going to consider sometime next year, this promise to Abraham. In Genesis 12, 15, and other places, this promise for eternal blessing of those who are connected to Abraham is fulfilled in Jesus. Okay, so God keeps his promises, but a second element of salvation here, what's required for God to save? God shows mercy in sending Christ. I love that, verse, verse 72. Uh, it says that, you know, Connecting it back, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And then verse 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers. And then if you jump down to verse 78, it's because of the tender mercy of our God that he is able to forgive our sins. God is unable to forgive our sins unless he shows mercy. Mercy is required. Do you know why? Because we are unavoidably sinful and unavoidably guilty before God. Mercy, when you receive mercy, it means that you don't receive what you deserve. Okay? You don't receive what you deserve. We deserve punishment, banishment, judgment, death because of our sin. We deserve separation from God because of our sin. But the birth of Jesus, Zechariah singing and praising the Lord for this, it means that God has shown us mercy. He doesn't give us what we deserve. And he can show us mercy only because Jesus came for us. Because Jesus, who was born here, would one, one day later die. And he would die in our place. He would, he would die to bear our guilt and bear our judgment. And in Christ, there is no condemnation because the Lord has saved us by showing us mercy. But there's a third element to salvation that we see in this passage, and it's, it's that God shows grace in sending Christ. So he doesn't just show mercy, not giving us what we deserve. He shows grace, giving us what we don't deserve. Giving us what we don't deserve. If you look with me, look with me in verse 77. John the Baptist is going to come, prepare the way of the Lord. It says in verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. We don't deserve forgiveness. My kids struggle with this concept. They struggle with it. Uh, we, we expect forgiveness in our home. 
We, we, ex- we expect two things, sin and forgiveness, okay? We expect sin in our home. We know our boys are going to fight. We know they're going to fight. And we know that every single day, someone's going to take it too far, right? They're going to take it too far. And most of the time, it's the oldest, okay? Just to be honest with you. Most of the time, the oldest is taking it just that one step too far. It gets a little too mad. He's a little stronger, so he just hits a little too hard. And so, you know, little brothers will get, you know, will get hurt, okay? And so, then he knows what he's supposed to do. It's not immediate all the time, but he needs to go and ask for forgiveness. Well, he'll go and ask for forgiveness, and sometimes, especially middle brother, sometimes, it's not met with immediate forgiveness. You know, it's like, hey, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And it's like, no, not yet. You know, no. Or just no, no. And I'll just be like, hey, look, man, he's not ready. He's not ready. You hurt him. Like, he's got a deal. Like, he's got to think about this. It's not just, oh, yeah, it's okay. But the oldest can't handle that. It's like, what do you, I, I said the magic words. I said the magic words. I should be forgiven. Almost as if we deserve it or that he deserves it. Oh, we feel like that with God all the time, I feel. It's like forgiveness isn't a big deal to us because we think we somehow deserve it because we say the magic words. Use Advent this year to understand that this salvation that is granted by God through Christ is God's grace to you. He gives you what you don't deserve. And until you understand you don't deserve forgiveness, forgiveness won't be a big deal. We don't deserve forgiveness, but that's exactly what he gives. Jesus saves in his coming. And, he, and here's, here's something I want you to see and remember, not, not only for yourself, but for your lost friends especially. God comes for sinners. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. That's a big deal because his people needed redemption because his people were sinful. And they were unfaithful time after time after time unfaithful 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 and that's who god comes for god comes for the unfaithful not the faithful god comes for the unrighteous not the righteous god comes for those who don't have their life together not those who do he comes for those who know they need him so you need to remember this these promises that we see here these elements of salvation Eternal blessing, eternal forgiveness, and an eternal kingdom with Christ as your conquering king are guarantees for who? Sinners. They're guarantees for sinners who are just as messed up as you and me. Are you a sinner? Are you a sinner? Turn to Jesus because he has come for you. Okay, one one last longing of the heart, one last desire that we have that's fulfilled in Jesus God has not only visited and redeemed his people, God has delivered his captive people. He has delivered his captive people. This is, this is a concept, this is a part of salvation that we, we tend to forget about. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't make as much sense to us, but it was primary for the people of Israel. They connected this concept of deliverance immediately back to what event in the Old Testament, do you think? The Exodus. The Exodus is the people were delivered from slavery in Egypt. They, they equated that with salvation from the Lord. So they speak of deliverance here and they think back to that time. In Christ, God has come to deliver us from our enemies. If you look at verse 71, blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people, verse 71, so that we should be saved from our enemies. 
and from the hand of all who hate us. And I love verse 74 too. That we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. You see, the coming of Christ means that we have power to change. We can change. He has come to deliver us from all of our enemies. For Israel, this, this immediately meant the physical enemies of those who were oppressing them. And, and for us, especially spiritually, we can think of sin. You think of Satan. You think of death. Jesus has come as a spiritual conqueror to deliver us from all that would keep us from being what God has called us to be. And, and in Christ's coming, God has come to deliver us not just to exist in some, some new, re, uh, new realm. He has come to deliver us to live in a new way. I love that language. He has come to deliver us so that we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Because Jesus has come, we are set free from all that would keep us from living as God would have us live. And God's goal in sending Jesus was to create a fearless and righteous people of peace. And the door to such a life has been opened by faith in Jesus. That's it. There's power in the Lord's coming to change us into a new people who will live for him and reflect his ways in our world. Here's, here's just sort of a takeaway from that. God comes from those who are trapped. God comes for those who are trapped. If, if you feel stuck, if you feel trapped in a cycle of sin, or if you feel trapped to a, a bad habit that you just can't shake, you need to take heart because Jesus has come to set you free. He has come to set you free from the power of sin. Now that doesn't mean that if you have a bad habit, that by, again, saying the magic words, it's just going to immediately release the habit. It's going it's to require some retraining of your mind and heart, some recalibration. But know that one of the purposes of Jesus' coming was to set you free from all that would destroy you or take you and take life from you. If you feel like there's no way you could live a life worthy of King Jesus, and I have so many friends right now who are so close to faith in Jesus, but they will not trust him because they think they have, they think that they are not worthy of the life that he calls them to. If you believe that way, know that there is power in his coming. There is power for him to change you. So if you live your life in fear of others, constantly trying to please them, know that Jesus has come for you to set you free from fear. The coming of Jesus means that we have no reason to fear anyone or anything in this life, and it also means that we can change. It means that we can truly be free. I want to close with this simple question. Do you feel your need for Jesus this year? Do you feel it? I, I can answer truthfully that I do feel it this year. I don't know that I felt it last year. I feel my need for Jesus this year. But if not... If not, if this is foreign to you, if you don't know what I'm talking about, here's my encouragement. Spend Advent like Zechariah. Silent. Speechless. Meditating on the wonder 
that despite how hopeless, sinful, and trapped you may feel, God has visited and redeemed you by raising up a horn of salvation for you. That you, being delivered from your enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of your life. 